Well, as I've been out and about this week, I run into people and they say things like, ah, it's a big week for you, isn't it? And in uh, some ways it is, uh, but it's actually a big week for millions. Around the globe, millions of people will gather to remember and celebrate the week of passion, as it's called, the most important week in the life of a person who was the central figure of all of human history. Listen to what one author said about him. 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was when his family fled for its lives when he was a child. He possessed neither wealth nor political influence. His relatives were inconspicuous. In infancy, he startled the king. In childhood, he puzzled scholars. In manhood, he demonstrated power over nature itself and hushed the seas to sleep. He healed the multitude without medicine and, no long, and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the world can scarcely contain all the books written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for countless scores of songwriters. He never practiced psychology, yet he has healed more hearts than all the doctors far and near. One day each week, all over the world, the wheels of commerce cease their turning and multitudes make their way to worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of past statesmen of great empires like Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds still. Though time has placed 2,000 years between those of us of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. You know, it's not uncommon when a person of that kind of significance, of that kind of renown, when they pass away, it's not uncommon for people in the culture to memorialize their life, or particularly the final days of their lives. You know, when a person of significance passes, sometimes, at least in our culture, we, we even make movies like documentaries or, or fictitious movies about the final days, the final hours of, of the, leading up to the death of a well-known person. In the past few years, we've seen movies about people like Anna Nicole Smith, Princess Diana, historical figures like John F. Kennedy, people processing the final days, the final hours of those li their lives. And there's something about understanding the context of a person's death, which gives depth and, depth and understanding to their life. Several years ago, I had a chance to go to Washington, D.C., and I got to go to Ford's Theater and retrace the steps of the final hours of Abraham Lincoln's life. There's something compelling about an experience like that. A year and a half ago, I had the privilege of helping lead a group uh, on a tour from Hope uh, on a tour of Israel. You just saw video footage of that trip. It was a remarkable experience for all of us. In fact, it's something I think everybody should do at least once in their life. And part of what you do is you literally walk the final steps, the final days, the final hours of Jesus' life. You see the sights, you experience the, the smells and the sensations and get the feel of Jesus' last moments before his death. And it's startling the impact that that can have. Now, obviously, I can't recreate that here uh, in Springfield, Illinois, at, you know, whatever time it is, 11 uh, on 30 on, uh, on Easter morning. But I can try the best I can to help you gain a context of Jesus' life in the last few days and hours of his life. And I hope that this will give you a deeper understanding of the life of the most impactful person that's ever lived in human history. So what I want to do is I want to walk with you through the Passion Week, and you may see things maybe that you've never seen before. You may get a deeper understanding of Jesus both in his life and his death. To begin with, we need to start on Friday and Saturday, actually before the Passion Week. Now, I have a question for you. If you knew you were going to die... In one week, you had some kind of prophetic utterance that told you your life was over in one week. 
And that week was going to be filled with all kinds of things that were must-do experiences, things that you could not get away from doing. But before that week began, you had a built-in time, a Sabbath, if you will, where you had no activity. What do you think you'd do in that time? I think most of us, we'd say, well, if I, if I, knew, if I, if I knew for sure I was going to die in a week, and I knew there was things during that week that I had to do that I could not get out of, then if I had time at the beginning of that week where I didn't have something to do, I would definitely want to spend that time with friends and family and loved ones. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I, I think that shows the humanity of Jesus. He did what any of us would want to do if we knew we were facing death, spend it with loved ones. The text tells us from Palm Sunday, Jesus, uh, from Palm Sunday on Easter, Jesus had a lot to do. But Friday and Saturday before, Jesus spends time at the home of three of his closest friends, two miles outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. The friends were Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He had a deep, soulish kind of friendship with this family. These are the last two weeks, uh, two days of his life before the final weeks of his life. You think of all the things he could have done, all the, all the activities he could have been involved in, all the places he could have gone, all the people he could have cared for, but instead he chose to spend time with this circle of friends. This seems consistent with human nature because all of us, I think, would want to maximize our time with those we love. It's also consistent with his teaching. Jesus taught love God and love people. His love permeated Jesus' teaching. He talked about the value of relationship and community all the time. Jesus understood that one of the deepest needs that human beings have is to love and be loved, to know and be known, to serve and be served, to celebrate and be celebrated. That every single one of us is wired by God to be in real relationship, real community. And though he was God, Jesus was also a human being. And he had that need as well. And so he lived out his own teaching. And as he started out the most important week in human history, he spends time around the table with his friends. Let me ask you this question. How are you doing on this one in your life? I mean, is there anybody in your life other than your spouse that you completely know them and they completely know you, that you love them unconditionally and they love you, warts and all? You celebrate and grieve together? You serve each other? you have anybody like that in your life? What are you going to do about that? After Jesus spends Friday and Saturday with his friends, then comes Sunday. This is the formal beginning of Passion Week. It's known as Palm Sunday. This was last Sunday. Palm Sunday, though, I think has lost something in translation for some of us in America. Let me help make sense of this in our culture. The closest thing I can think of that compares to Palm Sunday in our culture would be Fourth of July. You know, the fireworks and the, the kids running around with sparklers and uh, you go to a 4th of July parade and you stand along the side of the road and everybody holds up these, these little sticks with something on the sticks and we wave them. What are we holding up? Flags. Palm Sunday uh, was like that for the Israelites. The palm frond was a, a symbol of nationalism. It was a symbol of national pride. It was a way to celebrate their nation and patriotism. And so here's the context. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem and expectations are sky high that something's going to happen. There's a buzz around the city. Is he the Messiah? And when they thought Messiah, they thought national Messiah. He's going to free us from the boot of Rome that's been on our neck for hundreds of years. He's going to be our, our national savior, our military savior, our economic savior. And here was Jesus. He taught thousands, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands knew who he was. He had healed a, a variety of infirmities. He'd stood up to the religious, corrupt elite. He'd served the poor. He'd even raised the dead. Maybe, he, maybe he's the one 
And there's this hype. And this is Passover, and there's tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem. They're waving palm branches. It's their way of saying, this is it. This is the guy who's going to lead us into a better future nationally, politically, militarily, economically. That was the agenda of the day. But Jesus knew the agenda of his life was much different. And he was acutely aware that there was competing agendas. Jesus' agenda was to go to the cross, fulfilling the mission the Heavenly Father had given him, to be the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the world. So in spite of, in spite of the lure of all the other agendas, Jesus walks resolutely towards certain death. This last week, I happened to go to Atlanta for some meetings for the church, and um, I was on the MARTA, which is the, like their public transportation, like their, their subway, in essence. And there was a, an, an advertisement on one of the walls for a ministry there in, in, in Atlanta. And then I saw, I noticed downtown, I saw billboards for the same ministry, and so I got back to Springfield. And I did a little research on this ministry because there's something that kind of caught my eye. I wanted to share what was on the website. Here's what it says. Are you tired of living paycheck to paycheck? Have you ever observed a need that you longed to meet, but you didn't have the finances to help? Do you yearn to sow freely into the needs of ministry? Do you want more out of life for you and your family? If so, you need the school of prosperity. This is, this is associated with a church now. Dr. Creflo A. Dollar, that's his name. That's the pastor's name, by the way, Creflo A. Dollar. His school of prosperity is a course designed to teach you how to fulfill your God-given destiny, to be a blessing to others, and by, being a dis- and by being God's distribution center, because that makes sense. He doesn't have any warehouses. Um, whether you are financially comfortable or head over heels in debt, you need this course. In this course, you'll learn why God wants you rich, how to use biblical principles to make natural principles work on your behalf, the keys to debt reduction, how to increase your kingdom for kingdom advancement, and the automatic systems for ma- financial freedom. I read that, and I thought, you know, things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. I mean, human nature is what it is, and we still want to use God for our own agenda more than we want to understand what God's agenda is for our lives. I mean, maybe for you it's not money. Maybe for you it's, you know, you want your marriage to be better, or maybe you want to find a spouse, or maybe you want God's blessing on your business, or maybe it's on your kids, or maybe your health. And all those things are important things. But so often we think God exists for my agenda rather than me for his. And one of the most courageous things a person can do is say, you know, I'm going to drop my agenda. And God, I'm going to instead ask you, what is your agenda for me in this world? And so I ask you, have you had the courage to ask that question? That was Sunday. Then came Monday. On Monday, Jesus did something totally unexpected. Here's Jesus who's known for his preaching on love and patience and meekness and gentleness. And he walks into, the, walks into the temple and he sees this blatant deception and cheating of people going on. And he goes berserk and he grabs a whip and he sets about trying to bring about religious reform. Now I want to explain this. Some of you have heard of the cleansing of the temple. But I think sometimes people, again, we've lost the context for this. And think, think, people think it's about selling stuff in church. But that's not, that's not what it was about. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, there's explicit instructions for people who are Jewish people that had to travel a long way to go from their own country of origin to Jerusalem for certain feasts, like the Passover, like what was going on right there. And and so Deuteronomy says, if you're traveling from, let's say, you know, northern Europe or Africa or Asia, and you're coming to to Jerusalem for the feast because you're commanded to do that, it's kind of ridiculous for you to expect, you know, expect you to you know, haul your sheep with you. I mean, you can't, you know, you didn't have trucks, you're walking most of the way or your doves in a cage. That's not practical. So that what Deuteronomy says, what you do is you sell those things where you live and take the money and go to Jerusalem. And then when you get there, you buy the things you need to make the sacrifices. That was, uh, ex- you know, explained in Deut- Deuteronomy for people how to do that. 
And so uh, this is what was going on. But the problem was that people were coming from all over the world, Asia and Africa and Europe, and all different currencies. Uh, it wasn't like the euro and the dollar. And it was all kinds of different currencies. And um, it got very confusing. And so the temple instituted something called a temple currency. And there was one currency that was used in temple. So you'd exchange your money, your local money, for the temple money. The problem was they were charging exorbitant exchange rates for the people who were, who were trading in their money. So they're ripping people off, ripping pilgrims off. And it got worse. Then you'd get your money, the temple money, and you'd go over to the little stalls where they had the animals and you'd buy the animals for your family's sacrifice. But because they had a captive audience, I mean, these people came from all over the world. They didn't speak their language. They didn't know their way around Jerusalem. They were charging way over market value for the animals that they were selling. It was kind of a well-known historical documented fact. And so they were having to go get ripped off again by buying these animals way above market value. And then the worst part of it all was they would take, and again, this has been documented, they would take their animals in and give them to the priest to be sacrificed, and the priest would walk them around back and sell them back to the people who were managing the animal pens. And so Jesus sees this system in place. It's all about greed and money-making and cheating the spiritual pilgrims out of their, their sacrifice of atonement, and it infuriates Jesus. And he grabs a whip, and he says, you guys have made a house, this house of God, this house of prayer, a place for people to come to connect with God. And you turn it into a den of thieves. You're ripping people off. And so physically, he kicks the rear ends of those in there. He turns over tables, whips, pushes. I mean, it's a high-intensity experience. And it was a shock to everybody. But see, Jesus knew that the church was the hope of the world. And the, and the purpose of the church, going back to the very beginning, was to help people find God and to help people grow up in God and to help make people make a difference for God in the world. And Jesus is in the temple, and he sees this is all messed up. And Jesus knows in a couple days he's going to the cross and then he's going to die and then he's going to be resurrected and he's going to ascend to heaven. And the message of his love and his grace will be in the hands of churches who are supposed to carry this message around the globe for millennia to come. And Jesus understood if we get off mission and if we get religious or we get into political stuff or we get inward or self-serving, then the most important message that the world has ever known will get diminished. And so Jesus grabs his whip and he sets about trying to make right that which was wrong. That was Monday's memorable day. And then comes Tuesday. Tuesday was a day of teaching for Jesus. Jesus was one of, if not, the greatest teachers the world has ever known. I mean, we still study his stuff. I mean, most of you will forget what I say this morning by lunch. But, but Jesus, we still are studying and, and, and learning about his teaching. This is Jesus' final words. This is his last day to teach his followers. He had one day. And as strategic as Jesus was, he knew the cross was only a couple days away, and he knew he had one day. These were his last words. Now, if you know you're going to die, and, and you know you have an opportunity to impart your last wisdom to your kids, what do you do? I mean, if you're on your deathbed and you pull your kids in, you know you're going to die within the next 48 hours. You don't pull them in and say, you know, kids, you need to eat right. And here's my fantasy baseball tips. No, you, you, you talk about stuff that's deeply rooted in life and eternal stuff and transcendent themes. And so Jesus recognizes, I have one last day, one last teaching opportunity. And so what does the greatest teacher the world has ever known say in his one last day? Well, he talks about three things. First, he tells the, the, what's referred to as the parable of talent. Some of you know the story. Jesus says there's a guy who's a, a, a master. He's got three servants. He gives one of them 5,000 talents, one 3,000, one 1,000. He says, I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to be gone quite a while. I'm going to come back. I want you to see what you do with this. While he leaves, the first guy takes his 5,000. He invests it. He takes some risks. He does some things. He turns five into 10. 
The second guy, he's got less, but he still takes his three. He invests it, he takes some risks, he turns his three into six. The last guy, he's nervous, he doesn't want to lose anything, so he takes it and he, he buries it. Jesus, the, the master comes back. He says, what'd you do? The, the guy with 5,000 says, I took some risks, I invested, I worked at it, and I turned my five into 10. He said, way to go, you get a promotion, great job. Next guy said, well, you didn't give me as much, but I took what I had and I doubled it. He said, way to go, that's awesome. You know, you're promoted. Last guy says, well, you know, you, I only got 1,000 and I didn't want to waste anything. So here you go, here's the original 1,000 you gave me. And Jesus said, he severely rebukes this guy, fires him, says, you're out of here. I don't want you working for me anymore. What was the point of Jesus' parable? Remember, Jesus is facing his own death. I think that's on his mind. And he says, here's the, here's the deal. You and I only have one life to live. And it is short. That's the series we're going to talk about next week. Vapor. It's here and it's gone. What are you going to do with your one and only life that makes a difference? You can fritter it away. You can let your own junk and your own life get in the way of doing what God has for you to do. You can pursue all the wrong stuff. Or you can use your one life to impact the world for good. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, they're really not any different than you or I. They just simply decided, I've got a one and only life, and I'm going to make it count. What about you? You don't have to do it on the scale that they did it. You can just, say, just simply say in your relationships and your finances and your work, are you going to make your life count? We all have a certain amount of time and talents and treasures. We don't all have the same. That's a part of the point of the parable, but that doesn't matter. We all have some. What do you do with the time and the talents and treasures that you've been given? Jesus' message in that parable is don't squander it. And he says the same thing to you and I. The second thing he taught about that day was that he said, ultimately, there's a day of reckoning coming. Now, April 15th is coming where all financial accounts are settled with, settled with Uncle Sam, but that's not the day of reckoning that Jesus is talking about. Again, he's saying life is short. And we, you know, as far as we can tell, the death rate still hovers right around 100%. And we're all going to stand before God someday. And we can do that either in justice or in grace. And the choice is ours. It's not his. He's given the choice to us. See, justice means we stand before God and say, you know, I've done some good stuff and I've done some bad stuff and I tried to do the dudes and avoid the don'ts. I didn't do it perfect. I'll, I'll make mistakes. But I tried to be a good person. And so I'm hoping when I stand before God, the good stuff will, will over, overbalance the bad stuff. Now, I hope I've been good enough. Jesus says, or you can stand before God in grace. You can have righteousness, a right standing before God, not on your own, as a gift of grace. We don't deserve it, of course, but it's a gift. We can have what the Bible refers to as justification. We can stand before God just as if we've never sinned, like you've never done anything wrong. You say, but I have. Of course you have. We all have. But it's a gift. It just must be received. And the choice is ours. Jesus says the day of reckoning is coming. You can choose justice or grace. The third thing that Jesus teaches on that day is he talks about heaven. Interestingly, Jesus didn't talk about heaven very much. It wasn't a major theme of his. But I think he knows his life is coming to a close. And he says, you know, uh, guys, I'm going to this place called heaven. And there's a kind of tenderness in his teaching. And he says, I, I want you to come with me. You can't get there on your own, but I'm going to go to the cross to build a ridge so you can come. And I love you, and I want you to receive what I'm going to do for you on the cross, the atonement for your sins. It's all free. You're all going to live forever somewhere. Come live with me, Jesus says. That was Tuesday, day of teaching. Then comes Wednesday. You might think the tech people messed up on the slide and forgot their picture. But that's what happened Wednesday. Nothing. Nothing happened Wednesday. No teaching, no healing, no caring for people. John says on Wednesday that Jesus hid himself away. See, I think Jesus knew what was coming on Thursday and Friday. 
And he was human enough to know the pain and agony that he would be facing, the, the abandonment and betrayal by his closest friends. He knew what was coming was awful. And he knew himself well enough to know the fear he was facing. He knew himself well enough to know that, that he could rationalize his way out of stuff like we all can. Well, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that. And so Jesus voluntarily enters a day of solitude just to get alone with the Heavenly Father and say, I need a word from you, God. I need a word of affirmation, encouragement, peace, the promise that the strength I need will be there when I need it most. And so he gets away and he quiets himself and he shuts out all the other noise and voices. Let me be clear, this is not a wasted day. What about you? When's the last time you spent significant time, half hour, even an hour, in quiet, alone with God? Do you, do you realize what would happen to your soul if you did that? Some of you are in the midst of storms. We talked about storms on Good Friday. Some of you are in the midst of storms and maybe you feel like you're drowning. But this is how you prepare yourself for the inevitable storms of life, is time with God. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about a guy named David who was facing some significant storms in his life. And the text says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Do you know how to do that? Some of you are facing forks in the road. Questions, do I go this way or do I go that way? You need to get alone where God can guide you and give you wisdom. See, getting alone with God affords you the opportunity to be open to the work and the word and the counsel and the strength and the peace of God in your life. Jesus did that. That was Wednesday. Then came Thursday. This is when we get into the more well-known part of the Passion Week. Thursday, as you know, is Last Supper Day. Jesus gathers his closest disciples for a Passover meal, and he demonstrated one last time the culture of selflessness and servanthood that was supposed to pervade his people. You know, this is Passover. This is a big deal. This is a dress-up affair. And they all show up. They're looking around. Where's the little servant kid, the you know, below-minimum-wage person that's supposed to wash our feet? Nobody's there. They're all looking at each other. I ain't going to do it. You're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then Jesus, their master, their teacher, their rabbi, kneels down and to their shock washes their feet, affirming this consistent part of Jesus' teaching, which was simply this, that true fulfillment in this life comes not as a result of self-gratification or self-preservation or self-absorption. If you're always thinking, I just need X to be happy, I just need my marriage to be better, I just need to get married, I just need my kids to do this, I just need a better job, a better house, better whatever, if I just need that, then I'll be happy, you'll never be happy. And we all know this, and yet we keep on pushing, running on that treadmill. And Jesus says, it's exactly the opposite. The only way to truly be happy is to live for God first and others second. Then they have the meal. There's four cups of wine that are partaken in the Passover meal. And the third cup, the one right after dinner, referred to as the cup of redemption. Jesus takes this cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is a, a cup of a new covenant, a new kind of redemption, because my body is going to be broken and my blood will be shed to redeem, to buy back the lives of humanity from the bondage of sin. That's Thursday. Then it comes Friday. We just celebrated Friday. I don't need to spend much time on this. You know the story of Good Friday. Jesus is arrested in the wee hours of the morning. There's all kinds of you know, falsified stuff that happens in the trials. He's dragged before these guys like Herod and the Jewish leaders and Pilate who are all bent on self-preservation and self-advancement. He endures unspeakable torture and he goes to the cross. And there is only one reason Jesus went to the cross. Because my sin and your sin was so serious, it could be paid for no other way. And it was brutal, and it was bloody, and it was awful. And when at last Jesus cried out, it is finished. The price has been paid for the sins of the world. Then the sky grew dark, and the earth shook, and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it was finished. 
Sin was paid for. God, who was separated from humanity because of our sin, which was symbolically represented in that curtain, the separation was no more. Sin was taken care of. Then they take the body down, they place it in the tomb. That was Friday. Then came Saturday. You know, we don't talk much about Saturday. Saturday, yesterday was a good Saturday day for the Passion season. It's kind of bleak, kind of gray. See, Saturday is a day of despair. See, on Saturday, it's over. The hope for the, for the redemption of the planet is dead. He's in a tomb. The disciples who have staked everything in their lives on everything, they've left everything to follow this guy Jesus, he's dead. It's over. They're faced with the task of trying to rebuild their broken lives if they have the strength. Maybe you're here and you're in a Saturday. Maybe you're in a season of despair. Maybe a season of hopelessness. Maybe this last season has been hard on you financially or maritally. Maybe you're battling something with your kids, maybe in your career. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you're in a Saturday. And you have a choice, just like the disciples had a choice. You can hang on and be faithful and keep following, even though it looks hopeless, even though it looks like despair. You can trust that Sunday is coming someday, or you can give up. The choice is yours on Saturday. See, we know what happens on Sunday. That's Easter. That's why we're here this morning. Easter is when everything begins again. And Jesus Christ bursts, bursts forth from the tomb, conquering death and resurrection power. The first ones to see it are the Roman guards. These are guys who are trained killers, and they run from the, te- the, the tomb like little frightened girls. And soon women come to the, the, the tomb to prepare the body for burial, and they meet the angel, and they get the news, and they run back and tell the disciples, and the disciples come and interact with the risen Savior. And then ever larger groups of people over the next 40 days interact with Jesus, and they have their doubts laid aside. And after 40 days, Jesus ascends to the Father. And what's he been doing? Has he been absent all this time? I'll I'll tell you what he's been doing. From the day of his ascension until now, he's been holding out nail-pierced hands to humanity, saying, the price has been paid. I I rose to prove that I am who I say I am. Death and sin are taken care of. I want to invite you into my family. I want to offer you life and fullness in this life and eternity with the Father. And those hands are still outstretched today on this Easter Sunday. And the hope of all of heaven is that each one of us would take hold of that hand and we'd say, I need a Savior for my sin. And I want to get on God's agenda instead of always living for my own. And I want him to guide my life with wisdom and counsel. And if you take his hand today, it can be the best Easter of your life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your amazing grace and love. And I thank you for Easter. You know, we spend a lot of time in churches talking about the cross, as we should. We take communion once a month to celebrate what you did on the cross and your blood that was shed. But the truth is that communion is nothing without baptism. The cross is nothing without the resurrection. Because if it wasn't for the resurrection, that you would just be one more in a long, long line of religious, spiritual leaders who taught great things and then died. The world's full of them but then it would just be Saturday. We'd still be in that place of despair and hopelessness, but resurrection overcomes that. It validates the cross. So God, we thank you for your resurrection power. We thank you that for wherever we are in our own lives, even if we're in the midst of a Saturday, that we can hope and, and pray that Sunday is coming.
God, we thank you for your amazing grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.